This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down two very important decisions over the last week, one of them involving a web designer who refused same-sex wedding work. That one really had everyone freaking out. Why is it then that so much of the media is getting this ruling wrong, at least in their headlines? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. What did you make of the mainstream coverage of the 303 Creative case? Well, this was a great opportunity to look at the first reactions from the press and then contrast them with what they ended up publishing in the bodies of the stories and in their later reports. And in some cases, you got to watch the most important news outlets in the country kind of correct themselves on the fly. The other thing I would stress to people is that very little in the 303 creative case was a surprise to anyone who's been awaiting it now for over a year. I mean, ever since we first began to hear about this case and people began filing briefs, and ironically, before he became a New York Times columnist, the ever-controversial David French a veteran defender of First Amendment rights for traditional religious believers, French wrote a piece on why the 303 creative decision might be the most important church-state case of the decade, or kind of even hinting broadly for a generation in light of some of the issues that were raised in it. The court has been dodging a pure First Amendment speech case related to religious liberty and freedom for quite some time and has even openly admitted that in Justice Kennedy's decision on gay marriage, for example. He said, you know, someday we're going to have to deal with this. We're going to have to deal with the First Amendment elements of this, but not today, and he punted. So everything kind of gets summed up for me in a New York Times headline which Robert George, the great political philosopher at Princeton, actually he's a legal philosopher at Princeton, Robert George wrote an excellent piece at a website called Mirror of Justice in which he looked at New York Times coverage of two cases, both the, the student debt relief case, but the one we're interested in is 303 Creative, and it opens with the original headline, Web Designer Wins Right to Turn Away Gay People. Now, if you publish that headline right now, some people are going to say, that's not the headline. If you click on the link, the headline says, Supreme Court Backs Web Designer Opposed to Same-Sex Marriage. 
Well, that's actually the second headline that the New York Times put on this piece. And you can see in various places what the original headline actually stated, particularly in terms of people writing letters to the editor reacting to it, that were reacting to the original headline. But listen carefully to the second line, the readout, as we would put it in the double-decker headline, the second version of the headline. Supreme Court backs web designer opposed to same-sex marriage. That's the big, bold headline. The readout, though, says the justices settled a question left open in 2018 whether businesses open to the public and engaged in expression may refuse to serve customers based on religious convictions. Is the issue whether they can refuse to serve customers? There's that original misunderstanding of the case that dominated the first headline. Well, they forgot to get it out of the second headline in the readout. So what is going on here? There's so many things. And for someone like me with a degree in church state studies, this just lights me up like a Roman candle. There are so many things to discuss here, and we knew this was going to be an important decision. But in the end, what we see in this case is an example of something that several decades ago, I was asked by a journalist to say, is there some theme that runs through media bias issues for the last couple of decades? Is there some, to put it in scientific terms, is there some united field theory that explains a lot of the problems the press has with stories of this kind? And just quite impulsively, I blurted out, yeah, the big idea here is the religious right must lose. And that's very bluntly stated, but I'm amazed at how many cases of mistakes in the press and biased coverage in the press that is explained by that. And frankly, journalists, I believe, have trouble trying to conceive of what cases like this might look like if you turn them around and looked at them from the viewpoint of groups they would consider oppressed religious minorities or even religious liberals whose doctrines they would approve. In other words, they're having trouble trying to tolerate the views of people that they believe are intolerant one of the classic philosophical catch-22s of our age. So that's what's going on here. The press is trying to see this as a loss for the gay rights movement. And they're painting it broader than the actual words of the decision. And they're helped along by the fact that some of the dissents in this case fell for the same trick. They saw this as an issue of accommodation of gay customers, not as a First Amendment freedom of expression, a compelled speech case. So that was a long, another of my long rambling answers. But that's what's going on here in the coverage. Can the press find a way to look at this story 
through the eyes of people they find sympathetic and see it as a victory for free speech and for people who don't want to be compelled to express beliefs that are anathema to them. Can they find a way to see this through a liberal lens and simply stated, so far they have not been able to? Well, that was going to be my question was, have you seen any examples of at least an attempt being made? I listened to, I believe it was National Public Radio this morning, they had it as one of their headline stories in the top of the hour news, and the language was very neutral. I was listening carefully to see if they would try and portray it as a refusal to serve LGBTQ people, but they didn't. They simply stated the facts of the of the case. Yeah, there were stories where people simply inserted one word and made the story more accurate. Instead of turning away gay business, they stated it as turning away gay wedding business in this case. But we know from previous cases and similar things that even that is simplistic. Because if you look back to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, he didn't turn away their wedding business. He turned away a request to make an artistic cake containing content that offended his religious beliefs. He offered to sell them anything in the store that was already made, cookies, cakes. He offered to help them in every way he could, even catering the wedding, but not to create that cake containing intellectual content that offended his beliefs. And in this case, I don't know how, I mean, it was stated in the Supreme Court, the stipulations for the case, that she had not refused to do business with gay couples or gay businesses or gay individuals or whatever, and was not seeking permission to do that. What she was seeking was the right to decline to create intellectual content. And the correlation here to journalism could not possibly be stronger. She did not want to write ideas that she believed were wrong and offensive to her own religious beliefs. It's really easy, from my perspective, it's very easy to flip that around and try to look at it from the left. In fact, well over a decade ago, I wrote something at Get Religion. I may have even put a variation on this in one of my columns, for it would have been Scripps Howard at that point. I tried to turn this around and said, how would journalists cover the following case? So I put this in my Monday post that we're discussing, and let me just read it again, because this is exactly what I think journalists should have attempted to do. Put this thing in the mirror image and try to imagine a case that backed their side of the argument using a First Amendment argument and a compelled speech puzzle. So here's what I wrote. And I wrote this, like I said, over a decade ago. Let's say that there's a businessman in Colorado who runs a video production company. He is an openly gay Episcopalian and at the heart of his faith and the faith articulated by his church, that's kind of a reference to RIFRA, and you don't just make up doctrines. You need to have doctrines that are on print and people are defending. 
And at the heart of his faith and the faith articulated by his church is a sincere belief that homosexuality is a gift from God and a natural part of God's good creation. This business owner has long served a wide variety of clients, including a nearby Pentecostal church that is predominantly African-American. Then one day, the leaders of this church ask him to shoot and edit a video about a major event, the upcoming regional conference of the parents and friends of ex-gays and gays. He declines, saying that this job would violate everything he stands for as a liberal Christian. He notes that they have dozens of other variety video options in their city, and while he has willingly served them in the past, it's his sincere belief that it would be wrong to do so in this specific case. Now, if you had a case like that come, or Robert George in his commentary, he cites what if you had a Jewish, I believe he cites an Orthodox Jewish person who is asked to create content that explicitly is coming from the viewpoint of Messianic Judaism. Could he refuse not to make them business cards or not to make them just a general message, happy birthday to you, but they ask him to create a message that specifically says, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is the Jewish Messiah. Do you think the New York Times would be more sympathetic to that case or would be more sympathetic to my gay Episcopalian videographer case than they are to the 303 creative case, even though it's the exact same point of law as stipulated in the Supreme Court majority decision. Do you think they would be more sympathetic? So Terry, here's the difficulty I think that all of us encounter, and that is it's related to the clickbait issue, but we see a headline like this either being promoted by, say, in the case of the New York Times, an egregiously bad headline, or being retweeted by someone who finds it an egregiously bad headline. And in most cases, we don't go to the story and actually read down to see if they got the story right. They certainly got the headline wrong, but did they get the story wrong? Yeah, I would say that that's the syndrome that we're wrestling with. And that, of course, was the big idea of that recent essay that I wrote for the journal Religion and Liberty, in which I noted that in the clickbait and in the subscriber-funded journalism era that we're in, millions and millions of Americans are living in information silos where they're never exposed to any points of view other than their own and their own favorite broadcast newsrooms and their own favorite print publications online are serving up red meat to fire them up. I mean, we see this specifically on the evening talk shows of the warring worlds of MSNBC slash CNN and Fox News. And I guess now there are alternatives to Fox News since so many conservatives have turned off Fox News after the benching of Tucker Carlson. But this is an old problem and one that we've discussed here many times. And in fact, there may be listeners who attended the Issues Etc. conference a couple of years ago in St. Louis where I spoke. Almost the entire Q&A 
after my talk was dedicated to this topic, which is how do we find other points of view that we may not agree with, but we at least respect them enough to go there for alternative information. It's kind of like I pointed out a while ago. If you read David French, you knew what was coming with the 303 creative case and how the court was likely to rule. In fact, as French admitted in his New York Times piece about the decision, this is one of the last times where he put his lawyer hat on and he actually filed an amicus brief on the side of the plaintiffs in 303 Creative. I mean, so where you can read page after page of his own analysis of this case long before he was even hired by the New York Times. So anyway, what I suggested that day at the issues conference was something I did toward the end of my, my Monday piece, and I'm hoping some of our listeners will read that and give me some feedback on it. I came up with two different lists of people. I was requested to do this by the leaders of the Overby Center after a recent luncheon that I did there for clergy, students, and faculty. And I said, when the 303 Creative case comes out, here are some of the people I'm going to be looking to for feedback and things that can point me toward interesting information. So let me really quickly read through these lists. One of them is a Democratic activist named David Shore, who's a data analyst in New York City, and frequently examines the weak arguments of his own party. Michael R. Weir, another Democrat who used to work in faith outreach for Barack Obama. The Jesuit priest, Father James Martin, who's known for his work on LGBTQ issues. Barry Weiss, the editor of the Free Press. Andrew Sullivan, the, the gay rights activist and one of the pioneer bloggers in the world. Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist who writes a lot at The Atlantic. Glenn Greenwald, who's a hard-to-label liberal journalist, a, a gay writer and Pulitzer winner who lately has become a defender of the right on free speech issues. The author J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter fame. Ryan Berg of Get Religion and elsewhere, a political scientist and liberal Baptist. And Democrats for Life. Now, that would be a list of people who I agree with on some issues and disagree with on some issues, but they all tend, what unites them is they tend to have a high view of the First Amendment. And this puts them in tension with some of the trends within their own groups. I found a particular interesting, Father James Martin wrote a series of tweets in which I think he misunderstood the basics of the case, but he raised some interesting points. Why are so many conservatives only interested in content about gay issues? Where is their sense of anger and offense about divorce and sex outside of marriage and racism and a host of other things? And I think it's easy to imagine some court cases that might come up there. I then put up a list of people on what I call the complex right the non-predictable people on conservative sides of things. And that would be David French, Marvin Olasky, formerly of World, a historian, a journalism historian, Kristen Wagoner, who's the president of Alliance Defending Freedom. And, of course, that's who actually took this case to the Supreme Court. Robert P. George, professor of jurisprudence at Princeton. I mentioned him earlier, another Catholic thinker, an evangelical thinker, sometimes called a feminist, but I think that's inaccurate. Karen Swallow Pryor, 
my own friend Frederica Matthews Green, an Eastern Orthodox thinker, Rod Dreer, a provocateur, blogger, and writer of bestsellers, Anthony Sacramone, the editor of Religion and Liberty, and then someone I've recommended a lot, the editorial writer for the Washington Examiner, I think it is, Tim Carney, the author of the must-read book, Alienated America. Those are people I've turned to as well. And you tend to get, obviously, very sympathetic views of this case, but at the same time, you get interesting information about how this case is held in tension with some other things going on on the political right. You especially get that from people like David French and Marvin Olasky. I left out one. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is someone else I've been following for years. So how do our listeners find points of views that they respect, even if they disagree with them? I think that's one of the big things we have to think about, because if we're asking the press to consider the viewpoints of people that they disagree with and try to expect accurate coverage out of them, I think as news consumers, we kind of need to do the same thing for ourselves. And these lists were my attempt, far from perfect, albeit it's my list, not somebody else's. I'd be interested in hearing in comments that get religion from listeners who are wrestling with the same problem themselves. Where are you going to get information that challenges your own viewpoints and perhaps your own misconceptions? With that said, and only about a minute here, Terry, someone might say, look, I see your list. I don't agree with several of them. Why should I follow them? How would you respond with one? Oh, minute? no, I'm saying they need to find their own versions of this list, but they need to seriously look for people that they respect, even if they disagree with them. That's what we're lacking in American life right now, is the ability to respect the viewpoints of people on the other side and try to give them a fair hearing. And that's why I pay so much attention to people like Robert George and Kristen Wagoner and Karen Swallow Pryor and some of the others that were on my list. I'm not asking people to accept my list. I'm asking them to create their own and look for the complex thinkers on their side of the issue. People who are even willing to critique their side of the issue, like a Marvin Olasky would. But then look for people on the opposite side of the political spectrum who they can respect and pay attention to and maybe even learn interesting weaknesses in arguments on left and right. Who are we going to respect on the other side? I used to tell my students in Washington, D.C., that when you get through interviewing someone involved in these culture war issues, ask them, who do you respect on the other side of this issue? Who do you respect that you're arguing with? I never heard students ask that question and not learn valid information about the story they were trying to write and the issues they were covering. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is founder and editor of Get Religion, and he's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here.
I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.